so thanks so much for for coming. We're gonna we're gonna we'll start up and uh, the the thing that I want to the thing that I want to discuss today is 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 Abraham Avinu, uh, our holy father Abraham, and and there there's a a a, a Torah that I saw uh, uh, from the Chernobyl Rebbe. Uh, about Abraham that really just struck me and it sort of inspired um, inspired the what, what we're going to talk about today and uh, basically basically you know when you put something into the world that's real and that's true it lasts forever and one of the great things about connecting yourself to the Torah is is it, it makes you forever. It makes you forever. Our years, our, our mortality, our, our, our flesh makes us finite. But, but that's, that's just part of the story. That's just part of the story. But to connect to that aspect of eternity, you have to really connect to what is truest in the world. And the first person who opened our eyes to that aspect which is true and which is forever was really Abraham. You know, the matter says that when Moshe, we talked about it a little bit last week, that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to heaven to get the Torah, the angels wanted to kill him. And Hashem gave Moshe the face of Abraham and said to the angels, remember, Abraham gave the angels hospitality. So Abraham says to the angels, you want to kill this man who gave you hospitality? And then the angels back off. So, so I mention that because even Moshe, even the Torah, which is really our, our blueprint, our, our, our blueprint for, for, for the eternal, we wouldn't have gotten it if it wasn't for Abraham. So Abraham encompasses not only truth, but in this aspect, he also encompasses the receiving of the Torah. And it says that Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov kept all Tariag mitzvahs, all 613 mitzvahs, even Erev Tavshilin, even, even the sort of the most uh, finely conceived uh, uh, doctrines of the rabbis. So, so Abraham really had the Torah. And, and, and you see it in that Medrash as well, but it's just to, to further cement this notion that, that through Abraham we can really understand truth. And how to live our lives. And so, so the opening parsha, the opening pasuk of Abrashis, in other words, the, the beginning of the Torah itself, I'm going to read it to you in English. It says, In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, when the earth was astonishingly empty. I'll finish the pasuk, but that's, 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 that's really the words that we want to focus on. Tohu vavohu. That's it in Hebrew. When the world was astonishingly empty. Really, quite, a, quite an amazing visual. Just utter nothingness. And then it goes on, with darkness upon the surface of the deep, and the divine presence hovered upon the surface of the waters. So, so this notion of tohu vavohu. And we know that it says that if, if there were to come a moment where there weren't a person in the world doing a mitzvah, that the entire world would revert back to tohu vavohu. 
this whole, this whole, I mean, it just the world would just go away. And if that's too large a thought and you need a way to visualize that very simply, imagine sitting in a room, the lights are on, there are no windows, right? And then all of a sudden someone flicks off the light switch. Like, in an instant, everything disappears. Right? That, that's what would happen to the world if there wasn't at least someone who is cognizant that there's a God and who is bringing God's light down into the world through an action, through the mitzvot. Tohu vavohu, astonishing emptiness. So, the shorthand for that, what we're going to sort of refer to that as now, is just tohu. Tohu expresses that thought. So, now listen to the words of the Chernobyl Rebbe. And it's in this Pasuk, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. So, we finished the, the account of creation. And, um, you know, the, the, we're going to say, it says, Eli told us a Shemaim Va'aretz, Behibaram, right? So, those are the words we're going to concentrate on. So we translate it, and we'll do the whole Pasuk. These are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created on the day that Hashem, God, made earth and heaven. Okay. So, in previous talks, we've mentioned that this word, Bihibaram, that the Zohar says that if you rearrange the letters of Bihibaram, and you'll see there's a small hay there, that that spells out the name Avraham. And that basically, that, so if you were to translate it with Bihibaram as Avraham, so it says, these are the products of the heaven and the earth that were made for Avraham. In other words, the entire world was made for a person like Avraham. And of course, it's not just, okay, so God created the world for Avraham, what about us? The whole point is, is that his work is still being completed. And we're all emissaries of Avraham Avinu. So the whole world was created for the type of work that we have to do in the path that Avraham is teaching us. And we're going to go into a lot of these lessons. What is it that Avraham is teaching us? But we haven't said the thought yet of the Chernobyl Rebbe. You see something really interesting here. But again, I have to give you a little bit of background. So, our rabbis teach that the time span of the world is 6,000 years. Right now we're in the year 5,677. So we're in the home stretch. 5766. I'm sorry. 5766. Time flies, huh? Uh, <laughs> so, so we're really in the home stretch. <laughs> um, so the rabbis teach that this 6,000 year period is divided into three 2,000 year periods. The first 2,000 years are tohu, oblivion. Okay? The second 2,000 year period is Torah. And Rashi says that the beginning of that second 2,000 year period of Torah begins with Abraham. Makes sense? We just said Abraham kept the Torah. He went up. He had the, Moshe had the face of Abraham. So it makes sense that the period of Torah begins with Abraham. That's the second 2,000 year period. The third 2,000 year period is the time of Mashiach. 
Okay. So, so now let's return to this pasuk. You'll see some an, an amazing, an amazing thing that the the Chernobler points out. So, so let's let's put your eyes on the word Bahibaram, right? So that's that's Abraham, and that's the beginning of this second two thousand year period, right? Everyone with me? That's the beginning of the second two thousand year period. So what's the name of the, the, the first 2,000 year period is Tohu, right? Tohu ends with Avraham, right? So now the Chernobyl says, look at the first letter of the previous three words. Toldos, Hashemayim, Va'aretz. The first three letters, Tav, He, Vav, spells Tohu. An amazing thing. Tohu, the first 2,000 year period, and then it goes right into Behibaraham, Avraham. So, you know, the Torah is so deep. You know, I was davening with my son. I was davening with my son, uh, Parshas Breshis. It was the week of Breshis. And we were getting ready to, to, to read the Torah. And uh, it was either a Monday or Thursday. And we had, you know, the, 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 the Torah reading for Monday and Thursday. And... I mean, Cheshavis, it's just like the first Aliyah, so it's just a little snippet of the Parsha. And he, he sees me there, and we're sitting next to each other, and I just start cracking up. I'm just laughing. He says, why are you laughing? And I just drew a circle with my finger around those first, you know, 10 or 12 psukim. I said, the secrets of all of creation are right over here. You know? So... So just little things like that just open our eyes to, you know, if that's there, if that's there, what else is there? But I want to personalize. I want to, I want to just maybe add to the words, if I may, of the Chernobler. And uh, the truth is, is that what I'm about to say is really contained in his words. So I'm not really adding anything. But he's talking about this macro concept, this, this great division in terms of the epochs, in terms of the history of the world. But I want to make it a little bit more personal, if I can. You see, what the Chernobyl are saying is, historically speaking, before Avraham, it's the period of chaos in the world. And if you, you know, you have the Great Flood, the Tower of Babel, the dispersion, you have all that stuff going on. It makes sense. It's real chaos. So, like I say, just to bring it down to you and me together, if you don't have the teachings of Abraham in your own personal life, your life is chaos. That's what it is. If you don't have the guiding principle that there's one God in the world, and as we say so many times, so many people get so confused, what is this concept of, you know, people like to call it monotheism. I don't know. As soon as I hear words with that many syllables, like, you know, I just think about my bed and taking a nap. <laughs> you know, it's one of those words that goes straight to the head while bypassing the heart completely. Yichud, I think, maybe is a better, uh, better word. That, that means oneness. But, you know, after a, uh, after, after a chasin and a kala, a bride and a groom stand under the, the chuppah, you know, a lot of people think when they break the glass, according to Torah law, they're married. It's not the case. 
the real marriage, officially, legally speaking, sets in when they go into the Yichud room. When the door is closed and they're, they're alone in private, in public. Right? When all the eyes can see them alone together or know that they're alone, then that's when the marriage officially, legally kicks in. And that place is called the Yichud room. You know? So, so Yichud, Yichud is, is oneness. But it, it's more than just oneness. There's, there's, there's an intimacy to it. And, and this, is, this is what Abraham Avinu brought to the world. Was the notion that not just that there's one God, but when um, he he calls he calls upon he calls upon those who who make a pact with him to say in the name of the gods of the Shemaim and the Aretz of the heavens and the earth. You see, before it's it's not so hard conceptually. Or let's, in, in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to say that there's a God in the world, but to say that that God is really the God of the heavens. He's very remote. He's way up there. And um, that's very convenient on a number of different levels. One, it, it demands nothing of me. Because God did his thing, and now he's doing his thing, and I'm down here, and I can do my thing, right? But that's not, that's not reality. Abraham brought out this concept of the God who is the God of the heavens and the earth together, Yichud. That that Hashem who created everything is intimately involved in our own lives and is guiding every particular, every particular of creation. How much so? So one of the stories that had the, just such a big, you know, I'll tell you, you know what real Hasidus is? It's that when you hear, when you hear words that's that's real, that's real. Like really from the derech of the Baal Shem Tov. That that your heart gets warmed. That's the, that's sort of like the, the litmus test, if it's like the the, the real thing. So for me anyway, I guess everyone's different, but I'll tell you a story that that for me illustrates this. So what does it mean that God is really involved in, in the world? That he's the God of the heavens and the earth together. So the Baal Shem was walking with one of his students in the forest and he was giving over these deep concepts of God's providential nature, how he's guiding everything. And to illustrate the point, because the student was asking on this, the Baal Shem says, look, look up. You see that leaf falling from that tree? Let's follow it. So the leaf is falling and it's turning and the wind is blowing it in this direction and into that direction and then finally it lands on this little sunny patch on the ground. So the Baal Shem like walks over with his student and they pick up the leaf and underneath the leaf was this worm that was like hot in the sun. Right? So, to what extent is God guiding the world? Mamish, right? This, this little worm is hot. 
So he's sending this leaf to give him a little shade. Unbelievable, right? So if God is doing that for a worm, right, what's he doing for us? You know, one of my favorite stories, when, uh, when my first child was, 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 was first born, children, they can't see very far. Their, their eyesight only goes like, I don't, I don't even know how many inches or how many feet, but it's, it's just a little bit. They can just see just maybe a tiny bit in front of them. And so um, Moshe was crying and he was crying and he was crying. And we thought, okay, so he needs a bottle. So I was alone with him, holding this little, you know, tiny, you know, newborn. And he's just screaming, screaming, screaming. And I know he needs milk. So I'm getting the bottle. And I'm telling him, I'm getting the bottle. And he still steeps, he he hasn't stopped screaming yet. And I'm thinking, you know, what's wrong with this kid? You know, I'm telling him, I'm telling him what's going on. I'm making the bottle. He's still screaming, screaming, screaming. And then I'm putting the bottle, like, toward his mouth. He's still screaming. And then he gets the bottle in his mouth. And it's like, ah. He stops. And that taught me such a big lesson. Because here I was preparing his salvation right in front of him and he didn't have the eyes to see it. Because he could only see so far. And I thought, what about the rest of us? Right? How much is God answering our prayers? He's preparing our salvation right in front of our eyes. And we don't have the eyes to see it so often. So, so anyway, Yichud, Yichud. There is an organizing principle going on. There is an order to the world. There is an order to your own life. This is the first step from leaving the chaos of Tohu. The recognition, the recognition that there is an order. And like we always say, you have to understand, Judaism, Torah doesn't say there's one God, meaning our God is stronger than all the other gods. That's not, that's not what Yichud is. It means there is no other power in the world. There is only Hashem that is the only power in the world. And nothing stops God. Nothing stops God from doing His will. So how far-reaching does this go? So, you know, it's endless. It's endless. It's endless. It's endless. So, there were three prophets and... Nebuchadnezzar throws them into a fire. And so there's a, there's a debate that goes on in heaven. Two angels say before God, because God is going to make a miracle and He's going to rescue them. Two angels have an argument. The angel of fire and the angel of ice. The angel of ice says, let me go down and I, the angel of ice, am going to put out this fire. And the whole world is going to see this miracle God that you're making. And the angel of fire says, no, let me, the angel of fire, put out the fire. 
Now wait a second. How is how does fire put out fire? Fire can't put out fire. So what's his argument? The angel of fire's argument is God, if you send down the angel of ice, do you know what the lesson the world is going to learn from is? That you, God, are stronger than nature. But that suggests that there are two powers in the world. There's God and there's nature. And Hashem is stronger than nature. The ice is putting out the fire. So, so the angel of fire says, Fire can't put out fire. If you send fire to put out fire, then the world sees a double miracle. That there is no other power, it's only you. So God says, you're right. So the angel of fire, you go down and put out the fire. It's only God. It's only God. It's only God. So, you know, I want to go on to the next, the next step. So once we realize that there's only one power in the world, what is our attitude supposed to be? So we can't be afraid. So the Torah teaches us that the opening thought that you're supposed to wake up with, right? And uh, we're going to learn this out in a moment. There are really two things that you're supposed to do when you first wake up in the morning. Right? This is even before you get out of bed. The first thing is you say, Moda and me. Right? You thank God. And the second thing that you do is you get out of, to- you get out of bed like a lion. So we're going to try to figure out what that means to get out of bed like a lion. And we're going to connect those two things in a moment. But since Abraham is, is the one who's instructing us in terms of all these points, let's take a step backwards so that we can really so that we can really appreciate it. Actually, the truth is, let's, uh, let's finish this point, and then we'll see, we'll see really how to apply it. Okay? So what's Modani? I gratefully thank you, O living and eternal King, for you have returned my soul within me with compassion. Abundant is your faithfulness. Right? Rabba imunasecha. So, so all the Rebbes are teaching Rabba Munasecha, how great is your belief? Right? It doesn't say how great is my belief. I'm starting off a day with all of its challenges. I believe in you so much, God. That would be a good thing to think, but that's not what we're, what we're instructed to say. It's how great is your belief. The first thought is how much, God, you believe in me. Okay, so now listen to how Abraham and Sarah, because it's one neshama. Listen to how Abraham and Sarah, this is really the greatness of Sarah that we have to learn this out from. So Sarah, Sarah gets told that she's going to have a child and she laughs. And then God says, you laughed. And Sarah says, no, I didn't. And then God says, yes, you did. So what's going on there? What's that back and forth? So, so listen to this. This is from Reb Lebel Eger. Something really amazing. He says, listen, the whole foundation of our religion is Sarah. The whole foundation of our religion is Sarah. Sarah and Abraham are teaching us about one God. They believed 100%. If God tells Sarah that she's going to have a baby, she believes. So why is she laughing? The laughing shows on disbelief. So 
So Reb Leibla Eger says, no, no, no. It's not that she didn't believe in God. She questioned herself. She thought, maybe God's going to send down this brucha. I'll do something to mess it up. So that's why Sarah says, I didn't laugh. Because it's not you, God, that I didn't believe in. It's me that I didn't believe in. So what does God say back to her? Oh, no, 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 no. You did laugh. So what does that mean? So Hashem says back to Sarah, Sarah, I believe in you. So that means if you don't believe in you, that means on some level you don't believe in me. So an aspect of believing in God is believing in yourself and believing in how much God believes in you. So that's the opening thought. That's the opening thought a person has to wake up with. And then what does it mean to get out of bed like a lion? A lion is the king of all the animals, not because he's the strongest. In fact, I heard this really weird fact. Ready for this? An ostrich, if he were to kick a lion in the face, could kill it with a kick. (laughs) Maybe you'll need that piece of information sometime. (laughs) He's not the strongest of all the animals, but he's not afraid of any of the other animals. He's fearless. So what does it mean to wake up like a lion? So listen to these two thoughts, and I'm telling you, I've done this, you know. I don't tell you to do anything I'm not doing myself. It's really a good way to wake up. You wake up, God believes in me, and I'm not afraid of anyone. Try that. That's a good recipe. Okay? So now... What does it mean, this fearlessness? How are we learning fearlessness from Abraham? Well, a lot of different ways. But you know something? There's an aspect to Abraham people don't really talk about that much. Which is that he was mamish, he was actually a warrior. Not just a warrior, we we really concentrate on this in the spiritual sense. Because he was a warrior in the sense that he wasn't afraid to proclaim the oneness of God. He went out there and, you know, we, we were learning yesterday in the name of uh, Rav Yosef Karo, Mikhesef Mishnah. You know, this big question, you know, there was Shem and Aver, the sons of Noah, who also knew about Hashem and who also set up a yeshiva. So why weren't they the emissaries? Why weren't they Abraham? Because Abraham traveled all around and proclaimed the oneness of God and wasn't afraid wasn't afraid to tell the world. And that's really why he became the mantle of giving over this notion of Yichud. Why he becomes the father of the Jewish people. But there's another aspect. That's the aspect that we're familiar with. He was also a warrior general. He fights this war, the four kings against the five kings, which in that day and age was a world war. That was a world war. And he commands the Allied forces and he wins this, this, epic, this epic war. And we don't see Yitzchak fighting or leading a war in the role of a general. We don't see Yaakov. Yaakov actually, maybe you want to say this, he's even higher. He's able to avert a war with Esau, whatever it is. He's, he's prepared to go into battle, but he doesn't go into battle. I think really you have to go to, to David and Melech before you find someone who's a, a warrior king 
like Abraham is. So that's teaching us another aspect, which is not only not to be afraid of anyone, but to be prepared to fight for what you believe in. You know, there's something very weird going on in society today. And uh, some people are speaking about it, but we have to have things clear in our mind, you know? There's a big anti-war movement. And anti-war doesn't always mean peace. You would think anti-war means peace. It's a no-brainer. What else does anti-war mean? Of course it means peace. Anti-war doesn't necessarily mean peace. There are just wars and there are unjust wars. Now, how you decide what's what, okay, well, then you have to make a decision. But to say war itself is unjust or war itself always must be avoided at all costs, that's certainly not what the Torah says. So, you know, all of us, the nature, the nature of our souls is, it's, you know, and Abraham implanted it into the Jewish soul, this, this utopian sense, this sense of world peace. We're all striving for it. We all want it. But don't automatically go to whoever wants to appease the opposite side and say that's in the name of peace and the Torah, the Torah stands for peace above all things. Don't, don't as a knee-jerk reaction go to that. You have to know what's at stake. To give you the clearest, simplest, most obvious example, World War II. Like to say, ah, God forbid there should be a war, a world war. What we have to do is we have to appease Hitler and give Hitler what he wants. Yamach Shemo. What would the world be? First of all, he would have done his best to kill out all the Jews. And then he would have enslaved the rest of mankind. So, so that's not a worthy war? So, in other words, in other words, war itself, we should never have to fight it. But it's not, it's not necessarily a bad word. It's not necessarily a bad word. Obviously, we always want to avoid it at all costs. But Abraham teaches us that when it has to be fought, it has to be fought. And that's all there is to it. And not to be afraid. Because he's outnumbered. He's radically outnumbered. And miracles are performed for him. The Medrash teaches that basically he went with Eliezer and the two of them Won the war, just the two of them. And then there's another opinion. No, it wasn't just Eliezer. It's the Gamatri of Eliezer. So it was him and 318 people went. But either way, that's not a big army. But if God's doing miracles, I mean, how many people do you need, right? But it says he picked up sand and he'd throw sand and it would turn into like arrows, you know? So when God is fighting for you, you know, that's all there is. So, so now let's move on to the next thing. What's the next thing that Abraham is teaching us how to live our lives? So the first thing that we said is that you have to understand that there's an order to your life. Your life is not random. That there's no other powers. That you don't have to be afraid. That you have to believe in yourself 
And you have to be prepared to fight for what needs to be fought for. What's the next thing? Is davening. You have to daven because you're a partner with God. Returning back to that Pasuk, chapter 2, verse 4. You know, those of you who remember, where is it? Yeah. So, so, <clears throat> if you look at the Torah's account of creation, you see something really interesting. And we've talked about this at length. If you want a full discussion on it, there's a, there's a tape, I think it was called Rosh Hashanah, Your Role in Creation, where we go at length into this. But just to refer to it here, we're talking about prayer. The name of Hashem, the four-letter name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, doesn't appear until this Pasuk. So that means we're talking about the whole creation of the world, all seven days of creation, and we still haven't had this name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke. And the first place that it appears is in this Pasuk, after Behibaram. Behibaram, Behom Asos, Hashem, Yudke Vavke, Elohim, Eretz V'Shemayim. So you see something amazing here? That the name of God, the Yudke Vavke, isn't mentioned in the Torah until Abraham's name is mentioned. Behibaram is Abraham. So until Abraham's name is mentioned, this greatest name of God doesn't come into the world. So what's that saying? It's saying that human beings, that God flows into the world in the most meaningful, greatest way, through the human being. Through our actions, we bring God into this world. Like the Kutzkarebi says, where is God? God is where you make a place for Him. People want to say, where is God? God is everywhere. It's not a good answer. It's true. It's true, but God can be everywhere. But if you're oppressing other people, and you're speaking ill of other people, you're rendering God's omnipresent present irrelevant. Through our actions, this great light comes into the world. This is why the Yudke Vavke comes after Behibaram, which is Abraham, says the Zohar. So how do you make yourself partners with God to bring this light into this world? How do you make yourself partners with God? So this is done through prayer. Prayer and action. So, prayer is a difficult subject. It's a very, very difficult subject for a lot of people. And after I tell you this, if you haven't thought about this, it makes it even more difficult. So really, I shouldn't tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Which is, if God knows what I want, and God's the only one who can give me what I want, and God already knows, what do I have to pray for? That's actually a very hard question. <laughs> so, it requires a very, very, very lengthy answer. But instead, I'll give you a very short one. <laughs> Some argue, and I heard this thought in the name of the Maharal, 
that until we daven for something, even if God wants to bless us with that thing, it doesn't come into the world. Which is an awesome responsibility for us. You know, a lot of people don't understand, like, the Shemona Esra, or Jewish davening in general, out of a prayer book. You're going to tell me that I'm just saying these same words every single time? Like, come on. So, but the Shemona Esra, the Amida, right, contains every prayer in the world. That's what most people don't realize. So now let's rephrase that. You're going to tell me that I'm going to pray for everything in the world every single time? What's wrong with that? (laughs) How can I remember to pray for every single thing in the entire world every single time? The Shemona Esrei. (laughs) See, in my own spiritual journey, one of the biggest turning points that I reached was when I realized that the sages knew me better than I knew me. You know, we live in an age of runaway individualism. It's good to be an individualist. But if you're going to go to a black tie party with your underpants on your head, <laughs> then you see already that there's a logical limit to individualism. That at a certain point, individualism becomes absurdity. And that it undermines that which you're trying to accomplish in your life. So to cling to your right to be you at all times while neglecting the wisdom of the whole is absurd. And the point is is that contemporary society wants to tell you that you can't become realized unless you're 100% following your inner voice. That's nonsense. It's worse than nonsense. It's toxic. You yourself cannot become realized until you reach the proper balance between your own individualism and that which is universal, which is part of the community. And who understood these things better, better than Hashem and better than the rabbis who give us this, this incredibly detailed recipe of how to balance our lives and put us in harmony with ourselves and with the universe around us. So prayer, so we have to pray. We have to pray. And these things are rote. And if they are rote, then you have to say to yourself, you know something that's become rote? What am I doing wrong? That's the only proper question. What don't I understand? Because this is the truth. So if I'm not seeing the truth, then, then I'm not getting something. You know, another major turning point in terms of my spiritual journey was when I realized that when I heard a teaching, if I didn't like it, that the answer was that I didn't understand it. You know? You meet a lot of smart people and you tell them something deep and they'll say things like, that's ridiculous. Or no. Listen, if it was my thought, you could say no, but it's not my thought. So now listen to this. The difficulty of prayer. See, one of the big problems of prayer 
is that it's really a slow motion process. Every once in a while you pray something and it gets answered right away and it's so good. But a lot of prayer is excruciatingly slow. Excruciatingly slow. Because you're like, man, I prayed and I prayed again and I prayed again and I prayed again and I prayed again and nothing has changed. And it's very, very frustrating. And it serves, chas v'shalom, sometimes to undermine belief. So the first thing that you have to understand is that if your prayer isn't answered right away, it's not that God didn't hear you, God forbid, or that there is no God, God forbid even more. God just said, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. So where do we see this with Abraham? And you hear something, an amazing, an amazing Torah. Abraham davens for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Finds out that Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed. He davens that they should be, he negotiates with God, right? Tries his best to save them, which in itself is amazing. Like following the account of that negotiation, he says, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare this city? Because God forbid you should punish the righteous along with the wicked. And then God says, okay, for 50 I won't do it. And then he says, for 45, if there are 45 there? And God says, okay, if there are 45 righteous I won't. And then he says, if there are 40? And God says, okay, if there are 40 there I won't. And then I love this step. Remember, he went from 50 to 45. And from 45 to 40. Then he says, what about if there's 30? <laughs> you got to love that, right? What happened to 35? <laughs> he figured, okay, I'm on a roll, right? That in itself is a lesson. If you're on a roll, sometimes you got to go for it. Like Reb Shlomo teaches, when the gates are open, you got to go through. Okay? So he goes down to 30, then he goes down to 20, then he goes down to 10, but there weren't even 10 there. You know, I heard it in the name of Rabbi Wine, something amazing. He said that Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't destroyed. Who knows how many people were there? Let's say for the millions of people who were wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because there weren't 10 righteous people. You hear the difference? So if you ever ask yourself, what's at stake in my own life with choosing the right path, with doing the right thing? Ten righteous people could have saved a giant city. So to be able to become one of those people? So Abraham Davins, he Davins that the, that the city should be spared. The next morning he wakes up and over the hills he sees smoke rising from the city. It's very clear that the entire city has been destroyed and that his prayer hasn't been answered. So how do you think Abraham felt at that moment? Did he say, you know, my prayer wasn't heard? And even more significantly, what happened to Abraham's prayer? So listen to what Reb Tzadik says. 
he says, you know, there was there were some people spared from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family were spared. And Lot becomes the father of Moab. And Moab is the lineage of Rus. And Rus is the great-grandmother of David HaMelech, who is Melech HaMashiach. So, so how do you evaluate this prayer? Do you say it was completely ineffectual? Or do you say that this prayer brought Mashiach into the world? It brought Mashiach into the world. But that's a pretty awesome timeline for prayer, you know? It took a while for that one to... We're still waiting for that. We're still waiting for that prayer to get answered. But you know, like, Lahavdil scrubbing bubbles, you know? <laughs> they don't stop working. Prayers don't stop working. You know, I'll tell you something really mind-expanding. This is incredible. I heard this from Rabbi Green. He said that he was davening at the Kotel. And after he finished davening at the Kotel, he came across this uh, old-fashioned postcard that had been painted over, you know, like a black and white thing with the color paint job over it. And what was it? It was, it was these old Jews sitting on the ground in front of the Kotel. And who knows how old the picture was, you know, a hundred years old, maybe older, I don't know. And he thought to himself, you know, it would be great, it would have been so cool if I could have met these people or if I could have ever davened with them. And then he thought to himself, you know something? I'm bound by time, but God is outside of time. So, from God's point of view, the past, the present, and the future are all in front of him at once. So that means that from God's point of view, when I was at the Kotel, those people were also at the Kotel davening. We were davening together. So then he said, wait a second, if that's the case, that means that when we were davening at the Kotel, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and Moshe, and Aaron, and everyone who's ever lived, was also davening simultaneously. Everyone who ever prayed and everyone whoever is going to pray was praying with me at that time. And he said, not only that, he said, every time I've ever prayed in my life, I was praying with myself. Every aspect of myself from every stage of my life up until now, and from now on till my last breath, we're also there davening simultaneously with every age of every tzaddik that's ever lived simultaneously all together. And every time you and me pray, we are all praying with everyone who's ever prayed during every moment of their life simultaneously. And you don't want to be part of a community? <laughs> you want to only do your own thing? Do you know what we're part of? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you're made out of? Do you know what our role is? You know, 
Abraham, let's go on to the next thing that Abraham is teaching us. So what have we said up until now? First thing is you have to understand there's, there's an organized principle to existence. It's not chaos. There's yichud. There's the deepest aspect of oneness in the entire world. Yeah, you, you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that God believes in you. You can't be afraid. You have to be willing to fight for what's important. You have to daven. And you have to put your whole self, what we were just learning, you have to put your whole self into everything that you do. So now listen to this. By the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, it says, it says the, remember the whole story, Abraham puts Yitzchak on the, on the altar, he raises up, he raises up the knife, and then the angel of Hashem calls out from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, Remember, we were learning the, the, the greatest Torah from the Yalkut Shmoni. What does it mean, Abraham, Abraham? At that moment, the higher Abraham and the lower Abraham became one. He reached his full potential at this moment, right? The heavenly aspect, we all have a heavenly aspect to ourselves and the earthly aspect to ourselves. So, Abraham, Abraham, at this moment, Abraham became one and he says, Here I am. And the angel says back, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you are a God-fearing man, since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. So this is God talking, but it's God talking through the angel. So the Chida brings down this Torah. He says, well, What do these words here mean? A little bit confusing. That the angel says, For now I know. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you are a God-fearing man. For now I know. He didn't know beforehand? What does it mean that the angel now knows? So now listen to this. I think all of us are familiar with the fact that when you do a mitzvah, you create an angel. Okay? And if you think about it, almost like a physicist, it... It makes sense because when you do something positive or any action, you emit an energy, right? And that energy, like, comes into the world. That's a positive energy. So, 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 we create an angel when we do something positive. When we do something negative, God forbid, we bring an accuser into the world, right? So we talk about mida keneged mida, which you can also translate maybe very loosely, as what goes around comes around. If you're putting negativity in the world, that negativity can come back to you, God forbid. Right? Unless we, we rectify it. We can do chuba. We can change those forces from something negative to something positive by rectifying our actions in the present. But now listen to this. If you do something half-heartedly, you bring like, kind of like a real shvach angel into the world. You know? Like, this angel's got a limp or maybe it's missing a couple of arms, right? It's like, it's not much of an angel. 
You know, like when you mumble a bracha, okay, it's good, but, you know, you're going to look at your children in the next world, and, you know, some of them are going to be like, no, you know. <laughs> Oy, what did I convert to? All right. But again, all those can be fixed by making positive bruchas in the present, just to give one example. That retroactively, you know, you can screw some arms to the other ones. <laughs> um, so, but when you do something with your whole heart, with all of your power, you create this magnificent, fully formed angel. Okay? So now, listen to these words again. Abraham put every aspect, every, every fiber, every fiber of his being into this, into this test. And the angel says, do not stretch your hand against the lad nor do anything to him. The angel then looked at himself. The angel looked at himself, the angel. And he sees that every particular of him has been brought into being. He's a fully formed, perfect angel. So he says, for now I know you are a God-fearing man. Because you just did this mitzvah with every fiber of your being. And so the angel, from looking at himself and looking at how he was 100% complete, was able to say to Abraham, now I know that you're for real. So, so what are we learning from this? That it's not, it's not enough to be fearless. And it's not enough to fight. You have to do it with all of your power and with all of your strength. With a whole heart. And it's more than that. Because Abraham teaches us something even more amazing. We have a rule in prophecy. Hey, it's late. I'm sorry. We'll wrap it up with this. I'm sorry. Um, we have a rule in prophecy which is that you can't receive prophecy unless you're in a state of simcha, unless you're in a state of joy. Which means that if Abraham Avinu had been, you know, you can imagine, it's sort of like, I, I've got to go kill my son now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Don't talk to me about that. i got a lot of things on my mind, and I'm not in a good mood. Right? Okay, that's a a great misrepresentation of the story, but you can imagine a scenario like that. That story would have ended in a really horrendous way. Because think about it. Abraham's got the knife all the way high. Unless he was in a state of simcha at that moment, he wouldn't have heard the angels say, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it! So, so from this you see that Abraham was in a state of simcha. So again, you can still do something with all of your might. But there's another level. You have to do it with all of your might in a state of happiness. And I just saw the greatest Torah from the Chernobyl Rebbe. He says, you know, I, know, I don't know if you're like this, but I know I am. Half the time I'm either thinking about something or I'm wondering what to think about. 
right? And I don't like wondering what to think about because it's like, it's unsettling. So I was so happy to see this thought from the Chernobyl. He says, a person at all times should have one thought in their mind. I was like, ah, oh, thank God. What is it? Tell me fast. So he says, serving God in joy. So he says, if you look at the word in Hebrew, makshava, makshava, which means thought in Hebrew, makshava, if you rearrange the letters of makshava, it spells out besimcha, right? <laughs> which means with joy. So, so one just, you know, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that's what we should be thinking about. Serving Hashem with joy. So, so just to review, what is Abraham and Sarah, our holy father and mother, what are they teaching us? They're teaching us that there's Yichud, that there's one God. There's a God of heaven and earth, that God is intimately involved with every aspect of our lives. That God believes in us so much. And that as an aspect of believing in God, we also have to believe in ourselves because God believes in us. Not to be afraid of anyone. Not to be afraid to fight. To do everything with a full, full heart. And to do it with joy. Shem should bless us that we should be able to take these as our marching orders and to just go forward in life and to really see with our own eyes the Gula Shlema. Amen.